0: The going viral podcast from HealthEd shares the latest information on COVID-19 from authoritative voices and leading experts. You can find all episodes at healthed.com.au or if you're a registered health professional, you can listen on the HealthEd app as well as access many educational resources to support your professional development and practice.
1: HealthEd's face-to-face seminars are starting up again in 2022. And we hope that you will be able to join us for a day of high quality learning with a lineup of great speakers and important topics in women's and children's health. I'll be chairing a number of these events and I look forward to seeing you there. Register at healthad.com.au. Hello, and welcome to Health Eds Going Viral. I am Dr. David Lim. It is Thursday, the 26th of May. Associate Professor Nicholas Wood explains the latest ATAGI advice on boosters and other issues and looks at increasing evidence possibly associating coronary emergency events in young adults.
2: Hello, everyone. I'm Associate Professor Nick Wood from NCRS. And today we'll be providing a COVID-19 and other vaccine update. We'll talk to you about the current burden of COVID and the variants, a little bit of long COVID and vaccines, update you on what's happening with the boosters and the safety of the vaccines. So globally around the world we've now got um, 520 million cases and over 6 million deaths, and I think as you can see on this slide, towards the end of last year there was the Omicron wave and certainly into this year as well, But the number of deaths has not really increased so omicron is a a milder form of uh, the previous versions of of the COVID SARS-CoV-2 virus. Um, Around the world now we've given over 12 billion doses which is quite an extraordinary amount. The important thing to understand is that SARS-CoV-2 is a virus that changes and and these graphs show the um, changes of influenza virus compared to SARS-CoV-2. And essentially the steepness of the line indicates how fast the virus can mutate. And what you can see here is that SARS-CoV virus, the line is more towards the vertical, showing that it does change much more than the flu shot. Um, and as we've experienced, it now leads to things like this, where we get subvariants. So Omicron is the dominant strain across the world. BA1 and BA2 are the most uh, common um, subvariants of the Omicron strain. But there are also other strains like BA4 and BA5. At the moment, it doesn't appear that they are outpacing BA2 um, and also doesn't appear that they're causing any vaccine escape as well. So so that's good news. Um, A little bit on long COVID. So the questions that people are interested in asking and answering about long COVID is, does vaccination reduce the incidence of long COVID? And does vaccination after you've got long COVID um, improve the symptoms of it? very nice paper published from the UK um, Health Security Agency. And what they did was that they looked at the effectiveness of the COVID vaccines at preventing the symptoms of long COVID. And they found that um, in most of these studies, six out of the eight studies, there was good evidence that the vaccines could prevent uh, the symptoms of long COVID. Um, In terms of does vaccine improve long COVID symptoms, this was a recent paper which was published in the BMJ. And what they did was that they looked at the um, impact of giving a vaccine to someone who has long COVID to see if there's any change in their symptoms. And as shown in this graph here, what they did was they modelled the symptoms uh, before the vaccine, and that's indicated by those lines. Then when you got the vaccine, the symptoms you can see dipped down a bit. But between dose one and dose two, the symptoms seem to sort of come back a little bit more when you got dose two, there was also a reduction in symptoms. So so there is some suggestion that perhaps the uh, vaccine given to those people that have long COVID could actually reduce their symptoms. So the summary take-home messages for this one are that vaccination before infection certainly reduces the incidence and severity of long COVID, and then vaccination given to those that have already got long COVID does seem to produce an improvement in symptoms compared to unvaccinated people who've also got long COVID. This was found in about six of seven studies, but it's not an absolute story. So some people that do have long COVID who do get a vaccine do report a worsening of their symptoms. Okay, so now moving on to the COVID-19 vaccines. In Australia, we now have five vaccines that we can choose from, and they're listed here the Pfizer adult, the Pfizer paediatric, the Moderna, um, which has also got a paediatric formulation, the Novavax and the AstraZeneca. And the important key change really has been that uh, the interval between dose one and dose two has now been recommended to to be eight weeks for for all of these vaccines. A little bit on the new kid on the block, which is the Novavax vaccine, also called Nuvaxavid. Uh, This is a protein-based COVID vaccine. Um, It's registered for use in those over the age of 18 and it's a two-dose primary schedule like Pfizer and and Moderna Um, and it's given it uh, two doses of at least uh, three weeks apart but ideally eight weeks apart. And if someone's already had the SARS-CoV-2 infection, they can also have uh, this Nervivax vaccine. Because it's a protein vaccine, there's no problems with giving it to immune suppressed people. Um, and it has been approved by the TGA as a booster dose if no other vaccine is available. Um, So I wrote a summary article in the conversation, which uh, you might find um, easy to look at and also to uh, perhaps show your patients, Um, and it's sort of a snapshot of where we are with the COVID vaccines as of a couple of weeks ago. A really useful table is this one, which has been put out by Atagi. And it's a little bit hard to read but what it does is on the left hand column it goes through the the ages and the medical risk conditions it then goes through the vaccines that are available and the dosing interval dose one dose two and the need for winter doses or booster doses and as you can see here um, pretty much anyone over the age of 18 is recommended three doses so it's the two primary doses and a booster dose Those over the age of 65 are recommended their two orange doses, then a booster dose, and then most importantly, the winter booster dose. And the interval between the winter booster and the third dose is around about four months. And in the bottom section of this table are the people with the special risk groups, those people that have got immune suppression. um, And you can see there that some of them are recommended three doses as a primary course and then additional booster doses. Um, If you're wanting to know who are the immune suppressed people, there's a link down the bottom there that you can have a look at um, and this shows you the types of people that are recommended, the three primary doses and then the additional booster doses. So how are we doing with vaccine uptake? Um, This is all data that's publicly available on the Commonwealth Health Department websites. Um, And you can see we're doing pretty well. So in the orange bars show the two-dose coverage, and we're doing above 90% coverage of two doses in those over the age of 18. When we come down to the five to 11-year-olds, we're not doing as well. We've got 52% of that group have had one dose, and around about 38% have had two doses. In terms of the booster dose, that's the third dose, we're doing pretty well in that story. We've got about 70% of the population have had their booster dose, and around about a million people have already received a fourth dose. So so we're not doing too badly, but we need to probably work on that 5 to 11-year-old age group. So some of the questions that spring to mind are how effective are these vaccines in the 5 to 15-year-olds, what boosters are needed and how effective they are, and how safe are the booster doses of the vaccine? Um, The Advisory Committee of Immunisation Practices in the US has regular updates, which are all publicly available, and you can have a look at this CDC link here. And this is a nice paper um, which summarises the effectiveness of vaccines for children and adolescents. And what you can see here is that in terms of vaccine effectiveness for preventing against the children needing to go to the emergency department or urgent care, so it's ED and UC, Um, The vaccines are around about 50% effective in the 5 to 11-year-old age group and in the 12 to 15-year-olds, they're a little bit higher and you can see here that the two-dose effectiveness up to 60 days is at around about 54% but beyond 60 days, it drops down to 21% and then when you get a third dose, effectiveness bumps up to 73%. So, So overall, these vaccines seem to be less effective in the children than in the adults but they certainly do prevent um, children ending up in emergency t- to some degree. The other important condition that we want to think about is this one here, which is called PIMS-TS, uh, which is a post-infectious um, inflammatory syndrome, and um, in the Americans call it MISC. Um, and then there's a surveillance system in Australia which is actively counting these cases. And so far in Australia, we've got around about 96 cases of PIMS-TS recorded, our median age of these kids is about 8.4. Most of them end up in hospital because they do need treatment with either immunoglobulin or steroids to turn off the inflammation. And now these kids will be followed up long term. Um, Nearly all of them have made a complete recovery um, but it is an important um, condition that can happen after the SARS-CoV infection. So the question is, does the vaccines prevent against this particular problem? and it's pretty good and this is again data from the U.S. showing that in terms of preventing the PIMS-TS it's around about 90% effective. So that's one reason that we might think about giving a vaccine to kids to stop them getting the PIMS-TS. So what we hear from parents is that the reasons then perhaps not completing the vaccine schedule for their children is that maybe the kid has already had COVID and wasn't too bad so they don't see the need to complete it. They think the vaccine probably didn't work so well. They've already had one dose, but they still got COVID. They might be worried about the side effects of the vaccines. For many, they're back at work and busy, and this makes it hard to get to the doctor. Um, So I think there are reasons to get vaccines in this five to 11 year old age group. Importantly, we know that they stop kids getting hospitalized and they have very good effectiveness against PIMS-TS. So in terms of what COVID booster to give and why, ATAGI has recommended, as I said before, that all of those over the age of 16 get a third dose. The preferred vaccine is an mRNA vaccine, that's either Pfizer or Moderna. Um, AstraZeneca is no longer recommended as a booster dose, um, even if those people have already had the um, primary course with AstraZeneca. Um, But if they can't get an mRNA vaccine because they've had other issues like myocarditis, etc., then you can give AstraZeneca. Um, Novavax vaccine can be used as a booster um, uh, if necessary. Uh, And the timing of the third dose is three months after completion of the primary schedule. And as I said, we've got about 70% of folk who've already had three doses. So that leaves 30% that haven't uh, who would be eligible for a third dose, particularly those over the age of 18. And a fourth uh, winter dose is really only for selected populations, and that's given at four months after that first booster dose. So the next question that comes to mind is how effective are these vaccines? And there's a little bit of data out of the UK and the US. In terms of the UK data, you can see here, this is vaccine effectiveness against symptomatic infection. Um, And then the dark uh, little dots there, that's the infection against uh, Delta. And the circles, the open circles, that's infection against Omicron. And you can see that they both go down and and Omicron effectiveness is less than Delta. Um, By the time they get um, down to sort of six months after that primary course, the effectiveness is pretty pretty low. Um, This is effectiveness of the mRNA vaccine. You can also see that it drops down quite significantly for Omicron protection. Now, when we throw in a booster dose, you can see what happens. The effectiveness goes right up for both AstraZeneca-primed patients and also for Pfizer-primed patients. So, effectiveness jumps up quite well. Uh, Importantly, the thing we really want to protect against is hospitalisation. And this is the UK data showing that with that third um, dose or that first booster dose, Effectiveness against hospitalisation jumps right up to above 80%. You get the hint that it's also starting to trend down a little bit, which is why some countries have introduced a fourth dose. Uh, But the bottom line is that boosting that third dose will certainly reduce infections and most importantly reduce hospitalisations. So that's why it's important that if we can get that uh, booster dose in, we do so. The
0: following message is a community service announcement. I'm Professor Andrew Sindoni, cardiologist at Concord Hospital in Wright Hospital in Sydney. I'm talking to you today about the fact that we may be missing aortic stenosis in primary care. New prevalence data actually shows that many severe symptomatic people with aortic stenosis in Australia go undiagnosed or untreated. The prevalence of symptomatic severe aortic stenosis in Australia is about 60,510 people, but only 7,073 of those where people with severe, symptomatic aortic stenosis receive aortic valve replacement. Certain factors do increase the risk of developing aortic stenosis, and it's what we see every day. Advancing age, people over the age of 65, cardiovascular risk factors like hypertension, diabetes, cigarette smoking, and other conditions, chronic kidney disease, coronary artery disease. If we don't think about aortic stenosis, we're not gonna find it. So if someone reports these sorts of things, grab your stethoscope. Have a listen to their chest. Maybe you haven't listened to their chest for a long time or ever because they've not come to you very often or they come with other reasons. This is a condition in which we can intervene. We can make a difference. With surgical aortic valve replacement and nowadays with modern therapies with transcutaneous aortic valve implantation. This has now been extended to older people who previously would have been felt to be not suitable for surgery. You say, oh, that person's old, they're not gonna survive an operation. This is not a general anesthetic operation necessarily. It's a procedure which is done under sedation and local anesthetic in the femoral artery. And this can make a huge difference to symptoms and survival, keeping people out of hospital and really make a difference to their quality of life. If you think someone has aortic stenosis when you listen to their heart, or if they have those symptoms of shortness of breath, fatigue, syncope, chest pain, if you listen to the heart and you hear a murmur, either refer them for an echocardiogram or send them to see their cardiologist. Listen. Suspect. Refer.
2: So this is a summary from the US data, um, and you can see that the second doses are in the green here, that's vaccine effectiveness, and you can see that the purple is the third dose effectiveness, and the effectiveness jumps up. Um, And this is effectiveness, um, um, you know, basically either mainly in the US it was Pfizer-primed patients. So so there is definite evidence that a third dose or that first booster dose um, can give you good protection. So the next question comes as to what do we do about the fourth dose and and how relevant is that in in our environment? And as you've seen, um, we're recommending a winter dose or that fourth dose for those over the age of 65. Some nice data out of Israel where they actually looked at the effectiveness of that second booster against hospitalisation and death. And in this graph here, the the take-home message is that the blue is those that have had a second booster or a fourth dose were much less likely to die than those that have only had one booster dose. So, to cut to the chase, over 65s need a winter dose, winter booster dose. Uh, at the moment, there's no recommendation for a booster dose for 12 to 15 year olds. Um, they, we know that two doses, as I said before, does give you pretty good protection against hospitalisation. Um, and so we'll be watching this space. Some countries are moving towards giving booster doses, but not yet the story in Australia. There's lots of decisions aid, decision aids available out there. Um, NCOS website has these quite nice ones, which you can go through or direct your patients to go through. You can you know, look at the side effects of the vaccine and compare that to the risks of disease. And these are the sorts of um, things that the people work through on the website. You can choose a vaccine, choose an age group, and you can compare them head to head. Okay, so we're just going to turn quickly to safety data. Um, AusVacc safety has a lot of information available on the website, um, and this uh, is—you can—we won't go through it in detail, but I'll just show you a couple of snapshots. This is Pfizer vaccine safety data, and the dark blue is the third dose. And as you can see, we've recorded safety data nearly a million people who have had a third dose um, and it appears to be that the side effect profile is pretty similar to what we see after the second dose so that's Pfizer data um, no- uh, Novavax data you can see here that there seems to be a little bit more safety uh, reporting after the second dose compared to the blue which is the dark blue which is the third dose um, much less people in in this particular Um, set up compared to the Pfizer, you can see less than 2,000 people across the board, but that appears to be what's happening. And in terms of the paediatric data, you can see here we've given over 130,000 surveys out and it appears to be that the first and second dose side effect profile is pretty similar um, and and interestingly is less than is seen in the adults. So so that's the, the children data. One of the things that you all know that we're concerned about is the myocarditis and pericarditis story. Um, TGA has on its website um, data which is updated fairly regularly of the reports of myocarditis. And the summary is that the highest rates of myocarditis are in the males 12 to 17 years old, much more common after dose 2, more common in Moderna compared to, to Pfizer. Um, so, so that's a, a sort of summary. Now we also want to look at myocarditis in the 5 to 11s and again this is from a recent uh, presentation to the US um, ACIP and, and I've circled in the little red box there the dose 2 rate in males in the 5 to 11s and, and you can see that it is quite low. So. So um, this is passive reporting data in the US um, and so that's a good good thing that we're not picking up any myocarditis or very few myocarditis reports in the 5 to 11 compared to that older age group of the 12 to 20 year olds. So that's uh, passive reporting data. The other question is does the booster dose result in high rates of myocarditis? Again, recent data from the US ACIP presentation um, and the reporting rates of the booster dose um, are a little bit um, higher than the first dose but less than the second dose. So um, when, when asked um, by the you know, patients, is there a small chance of myocarditis and has it been reported? Yes, there have been some cases reported um, and it mainly again concentrated in that 12 to 17-year-olds. Uh, but um, but less after the booster dose than compared to the um, second dose. The other thing that we need to keep a worry uh, sort of a watch on is whether or not our whole COVID pandemic has led to any impact on other childhood vaccines. Um, and what you can see here in uh, UNICEF and WHO alerts is that there is a concern that the COVID pandemic has led to a reduction in. Uh, Vaccine coverage for the particularly for the routine vaccine preventable diseases, and we don't want to see that in Australia. So, that's all I was going to say about the COVID vaccines. So, I might just in the last little section turn to um, these three topics for non COVID vaccines a little bit about the influenza season and the vaccine uptake, a little bit about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander coverage, and then finally, a monkeypox update. So as you may see, and certainly um, appearing in the press, um, influenza has arrived um, this year. We didn't have any influenza last year pretty much, but it's come this year and it's come a little bit early. Um, And so this is New South Wales data, and you can see that it's going up in all ages, but particularly in the younger under 19 year olds. In terms of influenza vaccine coverage, this is data nationally from 2020 and 2021. 2020, we did pretty well, but influenza coverage dropped right back in 2021. Um, It was not too bad in the over 65s. There was only a small reduction, but in the five to 14 year olds, um, influenza coverage fell from 27% in 2020 down to 14% in 2021. And in the six month to five year olds, flu vaccine coverage fell from 45% to 25%. That's a drop of 20%. How are we going this year? Well, this is data from New South Wales, um, and you can see coverage in the over 65s is climbing quite steeply at 45%, but in that six-month to five-year-old age group, the coverage is is fairly low, only at 8%. So so there's definitely room to move with increasing our flu vaccine uptake. So flu is around, Uh, Coverage is low in the under uh, five-year-old age group, um, and so that's something that probably needs to be encouraged out there at the primary care land where you guys deliver nearly all of the flu vaccines. Um, As I mentioned before, WHO was concerned about a backslide in vaccination coverage. And what we're seeing here, this is coverage nationally from the indigenous coverage, and and you can see that that blue dotted line, which is coverage in the one-year-olds, is dipping down in the last quarter of last year, and that's a worry because it means that our hard-fought coverage of you know nearly 93, 94 percent has now fallen by um, one one percentage point. So we need to make sure that that does not continue to trend down, and that we continue the high vaccination coverage um, in the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander populations. So thanks very much for listening.